Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Brief History of Power. I'm Willie Grills here with Dr. Adam Kuntz. We're going to talk about Bleeding Kansas. Adam, how's it going? It is going great. Speaking to you from what was then Kansas Territory, little known fact, shame of Colorado is that it used to be part of Kansas. Yeah. Hey, I'm speaking to you from what was once French Territory, so... Where I am wasn't even Spanish. I mean, just nobody was particularly interested in it, but uh, right. it was part of Kansas. I mean, you got cores, though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Not even the top beer in Colorado. Right. In fact. So. <laughs> Depressing, but you know. <laughs> and so here we are about to talk about a very, very interesting period of American history. And we're going to open it up by actually talking about NGOs for a second. Uh, for those who don't know, this non-governmental organization um, a term actually not invented until the United Nations comes around, but we'll see how it fits in here. Adam? Yeah, NGOs is the way that we're structuring how we talk about Bleeding Kansas because they really are the decisive factor in why Kansas's history turns out the way that it does and why people end up thinking about roughly 1856 to 1859 in the state of the prelude, the beginning, or maybe even the beginning of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Uh, Part of that understanding is driven by the idea that the Civil War is largely about slavery in the same way that the fight in Kansas was about whether or not Kansas was going to be a slave state. I think that's debatable, and that's something, the Civil War being entirely about slavery, even mostly about slavery, is debatable. It's not really debatable in the case of Kansas, but they want to see it that way partly because it provides a certain moral narrative about American history that largely centers around the existence of slavery. And that's a kind of narrative you can see throughout America at this point, not only on the left, but that American history is largely about black people and whether they've been in slavery or whether they have had all the same civil rights as whites and, and stuff like that. So that's that's kind of one way of telling a story about American history. The reason that we're looking at NGOs is because we're, we're interested not so much in just what Kansas was about. I completely agree it was about slavery. That's why it was bleeding. But how that came about in the way that it did. Because in Kansas, you have a fight that you don't really have in Western Missouri, even though it's right next door. And when we talk about Kansas today, we're really talking about Eastern Kansas. Central and Western Kansas are extremely sparsely settled. (laughs) Unlike today. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Unlike today. I mean, uh, I would say today they are sparsely, I wouldn't say extremely, you know, but they are, they are functionally just a, a piece of real estate you have to cross to get to the gold rush and what they called the Pikes Peak region, which really has nothing to do with Pikes Peak, but that's fine. That's Colorado history, right? We're talking about Eastern Kansas. So climatically, you can have the same economic activities. You can have small-scale slave agriculture and make it very profitable in Eastern Kansas, as you can in Western Missouri. So this is about slavery. But the big difference is Western Missouri doesn't develop the same structure of support for each political side that Kansas does as in the early 1850s, the Congress begins to argue about 
whether Kansas will be admitted as a free state or a slave state. So let's talk a little bit more about NGOs in general. You know, what, what are they, what will they do? Are the, are the Jayhawkers or the, the people who are supplying them? Right. You know, how does that fit in? Yeah. A non-governmental organization is, and it seems like a cumbersome phrase, but the reason for the phrase is that it doesn't have the same claims of sovereignty and therefore also not quite the same resources generally as a, as a government or as a, a quango, a quasi non-governmental organization might have. It's, so it's going to issue having to maintain its own security force or it's, or, you know, whatever, it's not going to be funded by taxation, whatever. But the reason it's identified that way is because it will do many things that governments do. Mm -hmm. And crucially in the modern world, it will decide political questions that right. governments otherwise decide, usually in a way that is mutually beneficial to the NGO and the government with which or, or in which or because of which it's operating. So give you an yeah. example is that the immigration system and especially refugee resettlement in the United States does not function at all without NGOs. Um, right. The federal government doesn't have the resources to personally ship you know, Somalis in numbers to Minnesota or Maine or, or whatever, right? Without Catholic charities or Lutheran Immigration Refugee Services, immigration not only would be lower in the United States, but it just wouldn't be the same at all. There would yeah, be some and, resources. You know, occasionally you'll have them called, you know, NGOs, you know, environmental NGOs or social benefit organizations, things right. like that. But it's it's all the same, same thing. Yeah. And it operates in this in this basic way, usually on some mix today of public funding and private donations. In the 19th century, things that are doing this will either operate very strictly and openly in terms of profitability. So a lot of land will be settled by trusts and other, what we might think of as socially beneficial or purportedly beneficial groups of people, but yeah. they'll be called something like a company. Um, <laughs> right. and they might try to send settlers somewhere or something, but they're going to try to either make a profit and or collect private donations. So the economic structure is a little bit different, but the purpose is the same and that same ambivalent like is is this officially sanctioned or not or you know well one wonders if an organization that you and i both belong to will one day just become a straight ngo you know yeah you know and, and not to speak ill of gun owners of america um, <laughs> but but there's always a temptation for an ngo or something that isn't yet an ngo that has some <laughs> other purpose like a church to morph into an ngo because it has a comfortable financial and structural position yeah. and frankly longer tentacles than just yes. a religious organization yep. can in some countries right yeah if you are just trying to propagate the gospel you're not going to have the same reach and certainly in the modern world where various grant programs are available you don't have anything like the same funding than if you are trying to provide something that a government or governmental like entity approves of so ngos work this way because they always have because they don't have all of the sovereignty of a government, but they often do things that a government might want them to do. After the Civil War, a bunch of churches will function this way within the Indian mm -hmm. affairs system. So, Yeah, excellent yeah, example. Right. 
Well, okay. Well, let's move on then into um, some of the changes happening in the Kansas Territory and uh, what's going to lead to uh, bloodshed. Kansas starts out a lot like Missouri, unsurprisingly. It's right next door. And so it's largely settled by Southerners or, or Missourians whose grandparents lived in Virginia or, or Kentucky before that. And uh, they bring slaves with them. Now, the settlement pattern is important here. And immigrant groups are a lot like this, too. That's something we didn't talk a whole lot about last week. But the idea that we now call chain migration applies to populations generally as America settled. So hmm. people will settle in groups of people like them uh, wherever they settle somewhere new. And so a town like Lecompton, Kansas, which is going to produce a pro-slavery state constitution that will never really be in force, that's a place settled by Southerners. Lawrence, Kansas, conversely, is settled mm -hmm. by Northerners. At first, the Southerners completely overwhelm and that's part of the reason for this rallying cry by the Democratic Party of popular sovereignty. The Republicans who are taking shape as a political party in the early 1850s have a different approach with similarly popular appeal, at least in the North, and that is the idea of free soil, free labor, free men. Mm -hmm. So as Kansas begins to fill up and as Northerners come in some proportion, usually from like an Illinois or an Ohio, maybe less directly from the older Eastern states. They're coming into Kansas and their opposition to slavery is not fundamentally about the sheer abstract morality of slavery. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is again where history is a foreign country for most people because we discuss slavery in quite abstract terms with American slavery in mind, but in very abstract terms. They're, they're not doing that. Their issue is, I'm in the same climate, I'm raising the same crops. I'm 10 miles down the road from a predominantly southern settlement. There is no way that I can compete <laughs> with the labor costs of a slaveholder. I, right. I, ju I just can't win, right? So it's, it's kind of a question of a family farm versus a slave economy farm, even in small scale versions of slavery, that if he, if he has labor that he pays for once and then pays essentially, you know, food and, and clothing and housing for, I can't compete with that, especially if I need extra help in the fields. Mm -hmm. And that's really important to the early Republican party and maybe make sense of the idea that abolition as such as a sheerly moral issue is a very small thing. But eventually you will get a majority of northern-born people, at least in Kansas, and then later during the Civil War, certainly after 1863, support for the abolition of slavery, not only from troops who are just embittered at Southerners, but also when they begin to perceive the extension of slavery as a personal threat to their well-being. Now, so, the, yeah, the North, yeah, I mean, the Northerners who come in, there's there's something about them that is different than what happened in Missouri. So when we talk about the Mormons, the, the Mormons were kind of the, the opposite story in, in, in terms of being well-funded by outside interests or people who didn't live in Missouri. So, you know, 
you know, you mentioned the the failure of the Kirtland Saving Society, the, the anti-bank, <laughs> right? Right. The the Yankees who settle Eastern Kansas will some of them be sent by, but even more than that, will generally be funded and supplied by interests largely in New England who are not going to move there, but who support their presence there. So the way that this works in the case of specific example of the New England Emigrant Aid Society, or aid company, I'm sorry, is that wealthy industrialists in New England, which is the most heavily industrialized part of the United States, the earliest and the most industrialized part of the United States, are going to send funds to both settle Northerners who just have no, almost like Germans, we're talking about American-born people, but they're like the Germans we talked about last week and just having no interest particularly in practicing or supporting slavery. Yeah. They're going to help them settle. They're going to help them buy land. And eventually when things get hot enough, they're going to help them both fight and defend themselves. The reason that any of that has to happen is that political conflict is born with Kansas. But that conflict is not just a local issue. So the stuff that we talked about last week, relatively few people have heard of the Camp Jackson affair. It's taking place in a national context that's probably only about locally remembered. The reason Kansas is not only locally remembered, and you may even have heard of it in a U.S. history class in high school, is because it is seen as a national issue from the start. Kansas is not settled in this sort of quiet, even somewhat innocent way that many other places are. From the first, it's a place of immense conflict, so that even when they're talking about Kansas statehood, you have as many as, if I remember correctly, four constitutions proposed and printed before the fourth is finally accepted and goes into effect. Well, yeah, and there's just a ton of New England money coming in, and not just from the aforementioned group. There's the um, well, the Connecticut, the Connecticut, Kansas colony, sometimes known as New Haven, or even the Beecher Rifle Colony, who are going to build. And this is the name of the church: Beecher Bible and Rifle Church. In uh, I can never pronounce the name. <laughs> like uh, I can spell it for you, but it's uh, one of those weird Kansas names. Starts with a W, and uh, you know they're it's just such a strange thing for us, you know, to think about it. I mean, we might see something similar to it with say, you know, buses from New York, rebussing Hondurans back to Texas or something like that. That might be the closest thing right. that we'll see to it. Yeah. But you know, these, these aren't even, these aren't even, you know, government sponsored flights to Martha's vineyard. These are <laughs> private people who are yes. through the U S mail and the Adams express company and through Wells Fargo, <laughs> they are, and via the railroads, they are they are sending you know crates of rifles right. to and, towns that are reliably Yankee. Yeah, and good rifles, expensive <laughs> rifles, and advanced rifles. You know that, that like like I think that that colors this a little bit. These are the resources they have at hand. And I mean, what you know, I mean, for the listeners' benefit, there just is nothing like this coordinated from the South, like. When you look at, <laughs> when we talk about the Civil War, I tend to look at it very fatalistically, which is there's really only one way this can end, barring 
insanely unforeseen. We're going to be playing the band in the background of the entire episode. <laughs> the entire episode. Because the North not only has so many more people, but just but the sheer resources available. But And something that we reference with the Mormons that I am just so tired of people saying, Americans are individualistic. Americans are individualistic. Right, no. Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe if you're talking about like certain groups of planters who don't seem to be able to get their act together, sure, maybe, probably not though. But in the case of Yankees, not a chance. Yeah, Sorry. all communal. They're, well, and they're, really, they're, they're well, constantly subordinating their own interests, money, and time to people hundreds and thousands of miles away. Yeah. Well, and what people say is, yeah, oh, Americans are individualistic. What they mean is, is that we all have the same different collective opinion than the rest of the world. Yes. Yeah. That's right. really what they mean there. <laughs> we also, I, yeah, we also are still allowed to own our Beecher Bibles. So, right. Um, Actually, a Beecher's Bible you can still get through the mail today because really? they're. Well, yeah. Well, ex- well, hold on, hold on. I have so to explain be very, what a Beecher's Bible is. Let me be very, um, very technical here. So, the Beecher's Please. Bibles historically refer to the 1853 Sharps carbine, and now if you're so it's a breech loading. It's going to be a lot faster. Um, so you can't, if you get a cartridge one, you can't actually um, get like a new reproduction cartridge one through the mail today. But an original one, you could uh, because of a loophole. <laughs> uh, and so, no, but but predominantly you're looking at, you know, like the 1874s are where you get. But the 1859, 1863, those replicas are available. They're paper cartridge models. Uh, and so, yeah, go ahead. By all means, order one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So for those of you that don't know, things that use metallic cartridges, modern cartridges that came about, you know, in mass in the 1870s and a little bit before, with few exceptions, you cannot have them shipped to your door because of LBJ. But older style guns, you can and original ones, you know, you typically can. There you go. Yeah, so uh, a little bit of irony there. But right. in the old days, you could buy anything. Want a Gatling gun? Fine. Just ship it freight through the railroad or through a <laughs> cart, and you'll get it. You'll get it there. <laughs> but the the historically most features Bibles are the 1853 carbine, and and so very advanced for its time. Much higher rate of fire than the typical muzzle loading firearm of the day. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, nobody. Very few people are marching into the actual beginning of the Civil War with anything, you know, yeah. this advanced, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, and then, so by 1874, you're in the cartridge era, and it's a long time before something really can supplant what the Sharp can do at a distance and for power. You got the Remington block, you know, the rolling block actions and things like that. Right. Winchester high and low walls. But when I said this is an advanced piece of technology it is and it's going to come out of connecticut and so you know there you go right and, and the feature so, there is that is that it's the a henry, family yeah and particularly henry ward beecher right uh, when we're talking about the the rifle there so it, it's just a case once again of the industrial revolution having its advantages when you're trying to conquer a territory you know <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, something like this is possible because of the rail network and the industrial productive capacity of the North, mm-hmm. to which the pre-Civil War South does not hold a candle. 
And that is going to affect both the demographics of Kansas, but also the political solutions that are going to proceed from those demographics. Before we talk about the bleeding part of bleeding Kansas, is there anything else that you think we should we should set up about it? No, I, I think we've got it. We know who's funding it. We know what kind of equipment they're using. Right. And so let's 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 get to the headbutting. Okay. So when when people say bleeding Kansas, it's important to recognize that we're talking about something that is more like guerrilla warfare than armies anywhere in any sense meeting in the open. And that's going to affect both the tactics that are employed of which we'll give a a specific example with John Brown and his family near the end of the episode. But it, what it really affects is in a, in a long-term way is the breakdown of the trust that is necessary for the functioning of any polity, whether you're talking about Kansas as a territory and then a state, or whether you're talking about the United States watching the coverage of these things or sending money or at least following these things in some way as we get within five years of the civil war. So we're dealing with a situation that is completely destructive of all remnant trust because you have to think about it this way is that at any time you could be killed by people you don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the situation in which both, Northerners and Southerners who have settled in eastern Kansas find themselves about the middle of the 1850s. Right. And what's going to what's going to kick things off is a series of events that we would probably look at more as I would I would call them if I if I had to put like a a number type word on it. I would call them things like skirmishes or raids. And that pattern is going to define what happens during the Civil War in the same area, right? So, for example, by 1856, okay, Lawrence, Kansas, which is a firmly Yankee town, one way to know if New Englanders settled in your area is to look for where your state university is, okay? Because that's where the Yankees were. (laughs) Okay. Um, Goes for Boulder, Colorado and Lawrence, Kansas and lots of other places. And what happens on May 21st, 1856 is that both Missourians, so people from over the border, because we're not talking about anything that far from Missouri, as well as Kansans who are Southerners pro-slavery, they are going to burn the Free State Hotel. Well, you know, a very... I wonder why they picked that building to burn down, <laughs> right? As well as ransack two newspaper offices. And the, the key thing there, as we probably heard or learned with the Mormons, is that you want to destroy type. That's kind of the 19th century version of banning from all platforms. You're, you're trying to forbid him to have a public voice anymore. And they're going to just sort of make havoc throughout Lawrence. That's called the sacking of Lawrence. This is a little confusing because Lawrence will also be raided during the Civil War. Yes. We'll talk about that next time. And, and this is leading up to, of course, the U.S. Civil War, which is going to be until, you know, at least until the recording of this episode, the height of guerrilla warfare on American soil. Right. We don't see anything like this again 
we may yet, but we haven't, to my knowledge, on our soil to, to a degree, to this degree. No, yeah, and, and some of that is, you know, Pastor Girls has suggested that we do an episode basically just about military technology concerning the Civil War. <laughs> And I'm totally up for that. So, you know, once again, let us know if, if you're up for that. And I, I particularly would like to hear from like our, our listeners who are, you know, not gun nuts already. Okay. Because otherwise we can just do like a special 20 minute thing on it and, and send it out to the, just for we'll, the gun nuts. Just for we'll, the try. Nuts. we'll try, we'll yeah, try to keep right. it to 20, try and keep it to 20. But what's going to happen is that as we as we we have things like this in let's say like the american revolution the difference is that the increased rate of fire increased mobility all of that is going to make all of this vastly more efficient mm-hmm. so relative to what are we looking at 80 80 plus years earlier you can move people and weapons much faster, many more places, which will make guerrilla warfare that much more brutal because of the amount of force that can be brought to bear on a population. So if there are any parallels prior to this, the reason they don't seem like parallels very much is that the only scale on which Americans were killed in these numbers really has to do with Indians attacking white settlements. It's not Right. Whites and it, you know, it's one of those things about the Civil War that's repeated so much it almost has no impact anymore. But it, it's true that the tech, the war technology and the transportation technology increased so rapidly that the medical logistical stuff just didn't have time to catch up. Yep, exactly. And so the casualties are so high simply because of that. Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. That that the Civil War is a kind of nadir of American medicine because we have the capacity to destroy without anything like a similar increase in capacity to heal. I mean, it it is, it is in large part, whiskey and bone sauce. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. So a couple days after that, May 24th, the night of May 24th. So also including May 25th, a guy who is previously unknown, but who has been planning for most of his life to be engaged in something like this and who has moved to Kansas to engage in something like this. A man heretofore really rather unknown named John Brown, an unremarkable name, (laughs) is going to take five men from a village along uh, Pottawatomie Creek and he and his sons, he has a lot of kids, he and most of his older sons are going to hack them to death mm-hmm. with swords. Now, as far as technology goes, it's important to think about this. Obviously, a sword is a pretty ancient piece of technology. They, but it, it requires a certain violence that firing a breech-loading rifle at somebody invading your town, say in Lawrence a couple days earlier, would not. I mean, even if you look at historically, right, just self-reported rates of actually firing at the enemy, we're still pretty low even in World War II. So a lot of guys were firing overhead, reportedly, or, you know, 
pretending to reload or whatever, because a certain percentage of people simply cannot bring themselves to fire on someone else. You get similar discussions by people in the Civil War and, and even down to today. People have said, you know, I was deployed, but I, I didn't fire a shot in anger, not because I wasn't sent to do that, but because I, I couldn't bring myself to do that or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brown and his sons don't fire a shot in anger in this case. This is called the Potawatomi Massacre, for the record, for the folks keeping score at home. They hack people to death in front of them uh, right there with swords. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's pretty brutal. And thereafter, they're going to be hunted down, but they're going to escape the the territory, the, the, the burgeoning state, and will return later in the summer. But, I mean, before we before we go there to the Battle of Asawatomi, keep your Watomies straight in this episode, right. the, what they do at Potawatomi Creek is really remarkable for the yeah. just the sheer ferocity. And, and oddly, the sword thing is going to come back up in a very weird way when we get to Harper's Ferry. Yeah, because strangely, Kansas leads to Virginia, um, right? As it were, in the in I guess in the same way that that the conflict, what's called the border war, the yeah. border war, leads to the Civil War. So later that summer, so we're going from end of May to end of August, August thirtieth, eighteen fifty six, is going to be an attack by people and the. The terms here are on the one side. If you're, you're say, let's say pro-slavery, you are called a border ruffian. Okay, so you know, nice, nice average, neutral term, right? <laughs> <laughs> a border, a border ruffian. So that's you. And then on, and then on the other side, if you're anti-slavery, eventually those guys are going to be called Jayhawkers. They call themselves more often free staters, and that's the way that. Therefore, they're generally remembered in the history because they're the victors. But those are the sides, you could say pro-slavery, anti-slavery, but those are the sides. The key thing here is that the border, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, the border between Missouri and Kansas for the pro-slavery guys comes to be very important in how little it exists in their mind and very important in the the minds of the free staters or the anti-slavery guys in how much it needs to exist. The distinction between Missouri and Kansas becomes very, very, very important to both sides. Whereas before, it was probably more like the you know Nebraska South Dakota border, where we're not nobody's terribly worked up about that. You know, then or today, right? Not much of a border to speak of. Nobody's really worried about it. Kansas Missouri border becomes extremely important in the minds of both sides either because it shouldn't exist as much as it does because demographically the Southerners feel they have been dispossessed, or on the other side, it needs to exist because the difference between a slave state and a free state is going to become for the free staters of metaphysical significance. I mean, it's not just you're in a new state now. We have, you know, we wear Jayhawks hats instead of Mizzou hats. That's the border war today. It's just reduced (laughs) to college sports, right? It becomes very significant as... You're passing from slavery into freedom. You're passing from evil into good. Mm. So what's going to happen at Osawatomie on August 30th, 1856, is that this group of, it's really unclear. And whenever you're reading numbers 
in Civil War era things, you need to take all of it with a grain of salt because you'll find that even the best military minds are very poor at estimating exactly how many people are involved. They get better at that as time goes on, as the war drags on, but people who don't really have much or any military training in Kansas's border war. So the estimates are between, well, maybe it was 200 guys that came over from Missouri or maybe it was 400. I mean, that's a pretty big, it's a pretty big yeah. difference, <laughs> right? It's, it's a couple hundred guys at least come over and they are going to try to des- destroy the settlement of Osawatomie. And then they're going to try to go to Topeka and to Lawrence. Okay. John Brown is now back in Kansas and his son Frederick is shot in the settlement of Osawatomie. That is not going to prevent him from with maybe 40, 50 guys trying to defend the settlement against a number that it's, that's at least four times their size, if not more. But eventually they're going to withdraw and then the raiders are going to loot and burn the settlement of Osawatomie. Now, the reason that we told the story in the chronological order is because chronological order makes it particularly easy to see something, which is once the violence starts, tit for tat is just the way that it all works. There's kind of no other way that anyone really ponders, like, how could we stop the violence? Or, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Is that once, once violence enters the equation as a solution to these political problems, it doesn't leave of its own accord. You know, John Brown doesn't wake up one day and think, you know, this is fine. No big deal. No worries. You know, things happen, right? Nobody, nobody's going to go there. Or nobody's going to say, why don't we submit a constitution that we all agree can govern the state of Kansas or whatever? Well, no, because, right. hey, when you're in a holy war on one side, what else right. are you going to do? Yeah, and the idea that the free staters are in a holy war is one that not everybody shares, but Kansas is unique in having a much larger proportion of abolitionists involved, both right. distantly in funding, but also on the ground like Brown. Yeah, and it's unquestionable with Brown that he it's saw this totally as a holy war. Totally with Brown, right? And and the the key there is that kind of like when we were setting all of this up, and we said, you know, they're kind of like liberal Protestants. Well, they are and they aren't. They're definitely not like liberal Protestants in the strength of conviction that they have, mm-hmm. right? They're more like the early Mormons in the strength of conviction. Right, yeah, liberal Protestantism is conviction and no convictions, right? <laughs> and so. <laughs> Right. And so, so John Brown doesn't open the Bible and think maybe this isn't the word yeah. of God. Right. No, Brown is like, this is the word of God and the, and the, and the concordance is talking to me. Right. And I am Moses. Right. And so they, they're like liberal Protestants in the sense that their religion has very direct political consequence at all times. And that without that political consequence, they really feel that they're being unfaithful. So let me just give you a, just a little snippet of Brown. This is one of his letters. He writes this to his son, Jason, and this is after, after the burning of Osawatomie and after the Missourian Raiders, and this is kind of a key thing, they go back home, right? They don't live in Kansas, those guys, because Kansas has become a, largely a, a Yankee settlement all of the different towns. Brown says to his son, Jason Brown, God sees it. I have only a short time to live. 
only one death to die, and I will die fighting for this cause. There will be no more peace in this land until slavery is done for. Okay, so the statement there is not that, you know, there's some kind of cycle of violence that has now been engaged, right? That's not what Brown means. Mm -hmm. So whereas I think with hindsight, or certainly with distance, it's easy to look at any war and see how it spirals out of the control of the combatants. Right, And, and for Brown, I mean, think about what he's saying here. And I think we can charitably interpret it this way, that the bloodshed that's befallen America is punishment for slavery. Correct. And until yes. it's done, we're not going to stop. He's the right. avenging angel at this point. He, right. He is the avenging angel. So yeah. that, I mean, this, and this is where, you know, Pastor Girls is going to end the recording at this point, but this is where <laughs> Brown and the Danites look very similar because the, the common denominator here is not only, you know, the Bible is literally true, everybody believes that. It's that the Bible is literally true, and I am in the role, myself, mm -hmm. of bringing God's wrath upon a sinful people. Yeah. And so that there will be no more peace in this land until slavery is done for means, and he says this later on in the letter, he says, I will give them something else to do than extend slave territory. I will carry this war into Africa. So Brown, Brown did understand that this stemmed from an African slave trade. And of course, the slave trade with the Arab world is still very much ongoing in 1856. You know, say what you want about Brown. He doesn't let anybody off the hook for this. No, no, Brown. <laughs> he's not, he's, he's, and we'll, we'll talk in a second about, you know, perceptions of Brown at his trial, but he's, he's not a guy where you're like, this guy's a joke, <laughs> right? Like this is a, this is a serious guy. And he earnestly believes that what he's doing is right. Just like, as we, we talked about with the Mormons. Right. So, you yeah, know, a little bit of respect, at least that far. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what's where he's going to go from here is that he's going to understand something about Kansas is that Kansas wasn't big enough. And this is something to remember about border wars of yeah. any kind, any border, anywhere, is that if they have any extra local significance, right. it's because what has been touched off at the border exists at least as you know tinder, as kindling elsewhere. Right. And, and to be clear, big enough, not size-wise, but big enough fish. Yes, right. So what he's going to do after this is seek from many of the same people who are funding things like the Emigrant Aid Company more funding, but for a very specific goal. So Brown is originally, Brown was born in upstate New York, which is the, really the genesis of not just Mormonism and Seventh-day Adventism and spiritualism, but, but also of active, I mean, politically active abolitionism. Right. He grows up mostly in Northeastern Ohio. He's <laughs> going to wander back through those places. He's not going to stay in Kansas. He wasn't in Kansas to settle. He's going to wander back through those places for about the next two and a half years before he begins to gather people in the part of Maryland right across the Potomac River from Harpers Ferry, Virginia. It's not West Virginia, obviously, yet. And what he's doing there at a farmhouse with a group mixed of free blacks as well as whites is that he's trying to touch off a slave revolt. So his idea here was it's not enough it's not going to 
destroy the South if somewhere distant from the South proper and, and distant from large scale slavery, if I fight some Southerners, you know, yeah. or hack them to death, he wants to touch off a slave revolt. And yeah. in order to do that, he's going to need, he's going to need weaponry and he's going to need funding. Yeah. I mean, and this is a, you know, fairly well pl planned out raid. You know, he hires like one of Garibaldi's mercenaries to train his troops. He gets pikes and rifles and Beecher's Bibles and you know other stuff. And yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think I think all in all, it's it's extremely well planned. And he's doing something. And there are just so many delicious ironies about the story. He's doing something that about a year and a half later, the Confederates will do all over the South. But they're going to do with a great deal more success. So the degree of success that he does have, the you know number of days that he holds a completely hostile town, and has his men abuse the great nephew of George Washington, in addition to lots of other people, is really kind of remarkable. The organization is very, very good. Okay, so we're not in the timeline yet, but that first night when he visits uh, the great grand nephew of George Washington, bizarre. It's a, it's it's bizarre. <laughs> and I'm just going to jump the gun. Yeah, on. no, I mean it's it's all extremely strange. Yeah, but he, I mean, he, but go he goes there to procure two pistols from the Marquis de Lafayette and a sword that was presented to Washington by the King of Prussia because yes. he considered them magical objects, talismans. Yes. You would say. Yeah, talismans. Yeah, no yeah. question. Yeah, because which is kind of based in its own way, it, but <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, as a as a term of approval, the the thing about based <laughs> is that you do have to ask the, the the Joe Pesci meme question, which is based on what, right, right, right. because because based on his, you know, interpretation of American history and the significance of America, taking things given to George Washington and saying, "I am holding these until you get rid of slavery." Based, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, right. Like, the, well, I, I see. I disagree. The most base part is that he succeeded. Like <laughs> he did. He, he got did. him. He did. So, what we're referring to here is that they they invade in on a on a fall night and successfully not only seize the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, right? So very much un so unlike the guys from Camp Jackson. They have their act together. They've thought about it. They've planned it out. They seize the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, yeah. and proceed then to take various hostages, among which is, if I remember correctly, it's Lewis Washington, who has these heirloom objects because George Washington doesn't have any descendants, properly speaking. Right. Ironically, heirlooms from the raid will be sold to pro-brown people after the war. People forget that. They get sold at really high prices. There you go. And people forget that because they never do that. <laughs> but he's but I mean, gonna, he's but I mean see, in the time, which is, that's you know, right, that's you, right. you can see it like today, but in the time people are like, oh, I need one of these pikes that were never used. Yes. I would like a pike. Yeah. And what, what, what he puts together with his force, some of which is going to not survive the initial takeover, but, but some of which will. And, and most of which will will die in the storming of the firehouse in which he's going to barricade himself and his remnant as well as his prisoners. Um, yeah, freeing slaves and taking prisoners. I mean, 
<laughs> is the, the thing that's going to fail here is that everyone will still agree in 1859 that this is out of bounds. Right. That you, you, can't, you can't behave this way. We still, we still live in a country that is governed by law and you can't do this. We completely disagree by 1859, certainly about the application of the fugitive slave law. We disagree about what should have happened in Kansas. We disagree about lots of things. But the idea that you're going to touch off a slave revolt is out of bounds. Nobody right. really wants Haiti to happen in America and not right. just in the South. Nobody wants that. So he is not a popular figure, but the government is also not particularly ready for this to happen. So the people who are sent up from Washington, which is the closest set of troops, are U.S. Marines from the Marine barracks there, was there then, still is there today, as well as a U.S. Army officer who is stationed there named Robert E. Lee, who's going to be in command of the, of the whole thing, and a young Army lieutenant named Jeb Stewart. Greatest beard of the war. <laughs> Getting a run for his money now from many members of the clergy, but yes, I would agree. <laughs> And so they, they go up there on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad to Harper's Ferry because it's not stopped in that direction. Brown and his guys have successfully stopped it running eastward after letting one go during the night. And they're going to go up there and all control the federal troops. Again, this is very, very much a pre-Civil War, very unlike today. The federal troops don't come in and say, the FBI is here. You guys can all go home. Lee requests the governor of Virginia, Henry Wise, as well as local officials who have called out the militia. You guys want to go do something about this? And the local officials, as well as this, as well as the Commonwealth of Virginia say, no, you, you do it. Um, it yeah. is federal property. So right. Very, very modern in that way. No, that's your, it's your right. jurisdiction. You, <laughs> right. You get it. right. But this is like FBI hostage rescue team doesn't fly overhead. They like ask you if they can fly overhead would never right, happen. Right. right. But that's the idea. And so, that happens, and Jeb Stewart is going to go to the door of the firehouse, and John Brown is going to lean out the door with his rather large, impressive body and a gun, and parley with Jeb Stewart. Stewart hears Brown's refusal to surrender or to negotiate, and makes a signal with his hand, and the U.S. Marines storm the room. It's just a room. I mean, you can go see it. It's really pretty small. That's going to kill or injure many of his remaining guys, but not Brown. So Brown will go on trial. At trial, which happens quickly, as well as the execution thereafter. Yeah, I mean, the assault's only like three minutes. It yeah. takes them, it's just over. It's nothing, right? It's nothing. And as he goes on trial, this, I think, is probably the biggest political mistake I mean, I sincerely mean this. I'm not, mm -hmm. This is not just like an edgy opinion. I think it's the biggest political mistake that the South made hmm. before the Civil War. Okay, okay, political mistake. Other mistakes maybe. This is the biggest political mistake. Because what happens is that Brown's trial is because of the nature of the violence in which he engaged. And Jeb Stewart actually thought to himself, this is why we set it up this way. He didn't think to himself, oh, I'm talking to John Brown, because obviously there's no, like, he's not wearing a lanyard or something. He thinks to himself, oh, this is Osawatomie Brown, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? This is the guy that hacks people to death next to the creek. 
is that because of the nature of the violence in which Brown is engaged, the threat that he presented to public order, obviously in the South especially, but also because of his conduct. Mm-hmm. So he's he's physically impressive. He's eloquent. Yeah, he gets um, his famous last speech. At the yeah, trial. he gives a famous last speech. This all gets covered in the press. Yeah. So that's why I see it as an enormous political mistake. I mean, I think they should have, if they wanted this to actually die down and not to stoke things. Just hang but, him right there at the right. You know, he, I mean, you got a couple different options, right? You can let him rot until people sort of forget about it and then, you know, make press coverage difficult. You can accidentally kill him during the, I mean, they did storm the room. Right. Right. But they were, as it were, honorable about it. And they don't kill him once he has been subdued. physically. Well, these were the gentler James Buchanan years, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's okay. Pennsylvania is only president. You know, you're you're setting me I, off. Here, I didn't but, say uh, I didn't say Miss Nancy. I didn't say it. No, I and I appreciate that because <laughs> that's <a> slur. But <laughs> is that in eight, even even in 1859, it's not like everyone is sitting at home thinking, "I can't wait until hundreds of thousands of us die soon," right? Like nobody's thinking, <laughs> right. "I can't wait to get into this." So if you don't want to, you know, rock and roll, you have a lot of different options. And one of those options is you give him due process of law, but you don't make it publicly notable because mm-hmm. it's, and, and here's why I think it was a political mistake because there's something else that happened in connection with Brown involving NGOs as it were, that, that isn't a political mistake or that they can sense that they, that, that Brown side has made a mistake. It comes to light after Brown and, and Brown is a completely, I mean, he's, totally guileless guy. So he's like, yeah, these guys are funding me. There's a group of men, some of some clergymen, some wealthy men in New England and New York state called the secret six who have been paying for all of this since, since Kansas calmed down a little bit, they have been paying for Brown's expedition. I mean, it's a military expedition. He swears people in and gives them ranks. You know, Dangerfield newbie has a certain rank and other guys have another rank and his sons have another rank. And he thinks that this is a military, right? We're founding a new military is what he's thinking. They're funding all that. Well, some of those guys are so scared after Brown is arrested that they flee the country (laughs) until the civil war starts. So one of them is self-exiled to Canada for like two years because he's worried about being prosecuted for conspiracy for, I mean, it it could be framed as treason. He seized federal property and and executed federal. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the Lincoln assassination. People forget several people are hanged after, yes. You know, after Booth's death. Right. Yeah. They, they don't stop pursuing John Surratt for years. Right. Right. And then he still has to go on trial once they find him. So the secret six, it's not like Brown is arrested and immediately everybody's like, yes, this guy's so great. But coverage of how he behaves, how he looks, how he carries himself. I mean, everybody respects it. I mean, Robert E. Lee isn't looking at the man and thinking, I hate him so much. I mean, there's, there's not, it's not just, it's, it is gentler Buchanan years, but it's also, it's not like they all intrinsically think of life as like a video game where there are bad guys and good guys. Right. They're like, this man is upright. I completely disagree with him. He's very principled. He's upright. He convinced his sons to do this. You know, I can understand why people follow him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
So they don't have to, I, I think they handle, they, meaning the Commonwealth of Virginia, handle this whole thing very vindictively and swiftly. And so all you're getting is, wow, they killed him. They, they executed him really quickly, but he never was afraid. <laughs> and this is going to lead to a hardening of opinion, obviously in the South, because they're like, well, who else is planning a slave revolt? But also in the North, because they're seeing the South, and this is where this move is pretty important, the South is not just a place where they have a different economic system regarding people we don't really know or understand or whatever. It's that the South is a violent, destructive place, and nobody is safe until they can't be like this. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think it was such a large political mistake for the South, specifically Virginia, to make at that time. Yeah. So we're coming up toward the end of this episode. We've gone through Bleeding Kansas. We've gone through John Brown. Uh, what can the listeners take away from this? Where is this going to take us next? This is going to take us directly into the Civil War. We're going to shift our focus back to Missouri because the systems that are going to be engaged in most of the rest of the United States have lesser resemblance to modern conditions than Missouri and its border with Kansas do. Mm-hmm. We talked about this before, but I think it bears repeating and repeated discussion that we are not dealing with a situation where within our states, for example, pretty much everybody would be unified on a matter of Mm -hmm. nationally divisive significance. Yeah. I mean, such a thing almost unimaginable in the current climate. Right. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you know, you live in Wyoming, but Laramie exists, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or, you know, you live in California, but rural counties still exist. So you're dealing with a situation in the case of the Civil War where it's almost as if everything has now become, because of how quickly and how widely populations can be and and are dispersed, you're dealing with a situation where borders exist very close to home within a couple hours drive at most. And that's just, you know, that is very different from the idea that, yeah, like not everybody in Massachusetts actually agrees in 1861 that we need to abolish slavery. In fact, probably not even most people, even in Massachusetts, needed to see the abolition of slavery to be politically satisfied in 1861. But they are not dealing with completely different ways of life and completely different convictions about life and how life should be organized and what it is the way that we are practically wherever we live. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. This has been a brief history of power. I'm Willie Grills here with Dr. Kuntz. You know where to find us. We'll see you next time.